Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. These are godless times, Mrs. Snell. Oh, drink talking about which is the idea that that's another that thought, right? The idea that um, doing stuff out in the real world is good. Uh, you know, if your idea is only your discoveries are really only applicable to a lab situation, well it'd be interesting how I guess how scientifically interesting are they if they're not that generalized that's the question. Um, it's also a great place to get ideas I think I mentioned that when people started studying uh, food storing birds uh, this was because of people watching animals out of the wild do stuff. And they said, well, how do they do this? And it turns out they do, if you remember. Um, the thing is, though, at some level, we still have to be testing theories. In fact, that's completely new in science. And, uh, those are what cause and effect relationships, and you have to do those things under controlled conditions. So that's really good. Um, make positive causal statements. Now, this is, I am now going to do all of 2127 in 10 minutes. Um, to make causal inferences, you need three things, right? You need covariation, so that means that as one variable changes, the thing you're measuring changes, right? My favorite example here, easy to explain, is let's say we made a statement, and only about learning, but let's say we made a statement that the more alcohol you drank, the poorer your memory got. So I give you a list of words, right? And then I give you a list of drinks, and then I test your memory for the words. And I can give you maybe zero drinks, or two drinks, or five drinks. And I think you'd find pretty reliably that you would get, you know, so that's with zero drinks, and two drinks, and five drinks, and we could have for our dependent variable 100% correct recall. And you might be, let's say that's 50. So let's say you're here, and here, and here. That means, as you can see, they co-vary. They go together. As the number of drinks increases, the percent correct recall increases. Right? So, so far, we can say that's the first thing we can say about that alcohol increases, uh, sorry, decreases memory ability. Right? Because they co-vary. Temporal precedence. This just means the cause comes before the effect. So the cause, first is the alcohol, then it's the effect on memory. Cause, then effect. Right? Pretty, pretty straightforward. Oh, I hate this document camera thing that's in my way. I don't know what to do with it, but I hate it. It's just in my way, then an overhead here. This is, this is obviously a museum piece of some sort. <laughs> it's just, this isn't ergonomically designed at all. I'm going to walk into stuff, and then I'm going to see something. Um, I'm not litigious like that. So technical precedence, cause before effect. Well, in this case, obviously, because it's an experiment, right? I gave you the alcohol, then I test your memory. We can be pretty sure. Now, sometimes we don't know that, right? Because we've got things like, oh, I don't know, if we were looking at just a correlation, just covariation between two things, and we know that years of education, for example, correlates with your income. The more education you get, the higher your income. And it's just, it's not a perfect relationship, sadly. <laughs> I say sadly because I, I have all the education. <laughs> that you, know, you can get pretty much. But 
it's a nice, clear relationship, but we don't know what is it that people that have more money to begin with can afford more education. That's yeah, probably partially true. That's partially as well. So we can't make a statement there. With our, with our drinking and memory experiment uh, example, we certainly can. And eliminate alternative explanations. Now, what would an alternative explanation be here for the alcohol and the memory percent correct decline? Yeah, then. Residual effect. Pardon me? Uh, residual effect. I don't understand what you mean. Effects from the first trial to the next trial. Yeah, well, really, what we're going to do here, the experiment like this. I give you a list of 20 words. I give you zero drinks, two drinks, five drinks, then I test your memory. So there's no extra trials. Everybody send them for trials. They get one chance to recall. Right? So what could cause this? It wouldn't be the alcohol. And believe me, it's the alcohol. But give me an alternative explanation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Time, if you're doing this over a long period of time, they may just forget. If you give them 20 words and ask them five minutes later and then... No, we're going to give everybody an hour. An hour for zero drinks, an hour for two drinks, an hour for five drinks. Yeah. Yeah. Well done, but we can control that. Yep. Maybe they assign a bad memory. Yeah, we're going to randomly assign people groups. So we're going to make sure that the, roughly the same kind of people, we're going to trust randomness as our friend, right? So we're going to say that we're randomly assigning, we're going to get 10 people that are roughly the same. So we're going to get one guy with a bad memory in each group, one guy with a great memory in each group, and then eight guys that are roughly okay in each group. I'm using guy in a gender non specific sense. Good guesses? What about their level of attention? Yeah, again, we're going to be doing that with, well, I mean, attention might, they might not be attending to themselves after five drinks. That'd be, which is hint in a way. Though, randomness should make that the same in each group. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, I know randomness would rule this out, but uh, <laughs> uh, using all the same type of person. Like yeah, again, we're going to take care of that with randomness, right? So we're going to have some people that have a we're going to have roughly the same number of people, science students as we have art students, things like that. No, I was thinking more of uh, body type as opposed oh, sure. to really big guys. Opposed to, uh, yeah, we, that, that should take care of that. And especially in men and women, because alcohol absorption is a little bit different than men and women if you take a neurofarma and something you have. But we're taking care of that with randomness. Or we can just say all women are all women. What happens after you drink liquids? What do you have to do? You have to pee. So maybe it's the case that the people with five drinks, it's not the alcohol, it's the fact that they're sitting there going, God, we've got to take a piss. This is one of those moments I hope that the president doesn't want to as I might drink. Um, Hi, Rick. Um, <laughs> just talking about going to the bathroom. <laughs> so, but think about that. You know, the alcohol. These people might be distracted, not paying attention, because they have to pee. We can control that. We're going to give everybody five drinks, except that the first group gets five non-alcoholic drinks, the second group gets two alcoholic and three non-alcoholic, and the third group, the lucky group, gets five alcoholic drinks. Mm-hmm. How are we going to mask that it's alcohol? Because that might play a role. We'll put so much peppermint extract in the drink that it'll just taste like toothpaste. And that's actually what alcohol researchers do. They give you brain alcohol, like cheap, cheap, cheap vodka, or like that alcohol stuff. Mm-hmm. Delicious, delicious alcohol. <laughs> it's great with um, purple Kool-Aid. It's a very bad Western. Before um, football games, purple Jesus stuff for Western. <laughs> you put enough 
peppermint in with that alcohol and soda, you can't tell it's got alcohol. You actually can't because it's so pepperminty. And it, you know the interesting thing is, people that get zero drinks, they think they're drunk. Because <laughs> they all signed up for an experiment. We're going to do this ethically. They all signed up for an experiment thinking that they might get alcohol. Because, of course, ethics, you couldn't say to somebody, you couldn't think, oh, you know what would be funny? Let's see if we can make Mormons and Muslims drink. So let's have the experiment. That wouldn't be very nice. The, the ethically horrible, morally reprehensible, etc., etc. Why do people don't drink? Right? Out of just choice, not a religious thing, just out of choice. Some people don't drink and they give them five drinks, they're going to be in trouble. They'll be puking everywhere. There's practically no that. Right? So people would have signed up for this experiment knowing that they might drink alcohol. And if they were going to take their car keys, this is in fact the, the protocol that's used. You take the car keys, uh, you don't let them leave the experiment until they've blown to zero on a, on a breathalyzer. You let them like movies and stuff, usually, play video games. When I was a uh, postdoc, you can tell the graduate students that would sign up for this one woman who they're doing perception research about all. People would always sign up for experiments because there's like a one in three chance that you get hammered at 10 o'clock in the morning for free. Right? So they sign up, and it was typically graduate students who like, now I've got an excuse, I don't have to be in the lab all day, I like to watch movies and some popcorn. And that's what she do. It was really funny because people would come out of these experiments and they'd say, I thought I was drunk, then I blew a zero, and I was told I was in the control room. So that would control this pretty nicely. That's then we would eliminate alternative explanations. So alternative explanations are things that reasonable ones are ones that you actually could control. They're like you can explain the data, I'm sorry, with the alternative explanation. Like saying all the people are different doesn't tell me why it was zero, two, and five. Uh, like with the curve going down like that, right? So if you have all three of these, we can we can satisfy the idea that x cost is right, right? So, and this is something that you'll find. This is why we do experimentation in in, in in psychology in general. But this is also in learning. Typically, we're going to have we're going to we're going to satisfy all of these things because we're going to do these things in a lab, right? And we're going to control stuff. Oh, that's true. Only So then we're going to make a statement that alcohol decreases recall. We're going to call that a very specific theory. You probably know this: the theories have to be falsifiable, and they, so that means they have to make precise enough predictions to be shown to be false. Right? The all-time classic in psychology of a non-falsifiable theory is Freud, right? Right? It's like, because if I said to you, do you want to have sex with your mother until your father? You're all going to say no, I hope. But when you say no, I'm going to say, well, clearly you're repressing my theories. <laughs> and when you say yes, I will call the authorities and I will call the way. But even when my theories are shown to be correct, you cannot disprove psychoanalysis, which is one of its horrible weaknesses, besides just being icky, which is a weakness. And the same for something is better. Simple theories are better than complicated theories, typically. Uh, and there's a beautiful, uh, it's beautiful that our universe works that way, but typically simple things tend to be more correct than non-simple. It's rare, in fact, when complicated 
theories work better than simple theories. You think about, you know about the whole idea of the heliocentric solar system, right? The idea that the sun's the center. You know that, right? We roll all around the sun. Okay. Yep. Yeah, you're not going to admit it if you think the other way. The Earth doesn't fly. Yeah, it's not the center of the universe. The only heliocentric model, the Ptolemaic model, as it was called, you actually couldn't predict where the stars would be. It was exceedingly complicated, and there were a lot more equations, which you could do it, than guys like Copernicus, Galileo, come along and go, no. You know what's easier? Sun, everything around it. But uh, you're going to the, you know, you're banished, as they used to say. Shakespearean plays. Did anybody talk? I think anybody talked to talk like that. Maybe they did. So, but it's a simpler theory. It actually turns out to be correct. It's also the case more general something better. So our theory here that alcohol deepens, which ooh, going under the real thing here. I'm not afraid to say that alcohol affects your memory. I like to make these kind of controversial statements. Um, that's not that general theory. I'm not talking generally about all memory works. I'm saying that if you drink too much, you don't remember much. That's not great. That's not great. The more general, the better. What's a good general one? Oh, how about force equals mass times acceleration? That works pretty well. Good old Newton's second law. What about evolution by natural selection? Oh, that's pretty good. It explains biological diversity and flood. Yeah, that's not bad. And then we think of things being fruitful. Do they, do they generate research? And this is, theories generate research because people test them. And they're really good if people keep testing them and testing them and pushing the limits. So is evolution a good theory that way? Well, yeah, we now have biology. So it worked out OK. Um, you can think about something a little more specific, like we'll, we'll talk about this in this course. We'll talk about theories like the Rosquillo Wagner model of the classical condition, which is something we'll get to. And it's a, it's a mathematical model of how learning happens. And it basically says that you learn more the more surprised you are, you being a human, you being a rat. And that's been tested like crazy. It's a very fruitful theory. A lot of research has come out of it. Where you look at something smaller, um, the idea that there's a hierarchical representation in uh, food storing birds of, of, of storage locations. It's a pretty decent one, but it's not like there's been a ton of research. It's the most fruitful thing in the world. That's mine. So it's unknown to score the Wagner. And they have to make predictions. Right? Force equals mass time acceleration is great. Hey, look at equation. That's a nice prediction. But also, I mean, by, uh, look at Darwinian stuff that makes great predictions. Uh, so does um, the school of Wagner makes predictions. But even some of the lot of things that you know, the Skinner said, you know, the FR and FI and DI and DR. So these are pretty decent theories because they make predictions. They predict stuff. Well, which goes into the other side. So that's where we take a look at the theory. If you're going to compare two things, and we'll do that a lot in this class because a lot of times there are different explanations. You'll see that, of course, a lot in any science. There's a lot of explanations, a couple or more competing explanations for something, for some phenomenon. Sometimes there's one that's good, sometimes it's, well, that's fine because it's done then. But sometimes there's two or three ideas. We'll get to that. We talk about avoidance learning, right? When I explain to you that when a rat, if I take a, a, a box, like a 
be about this big, okay? I'll make half the box white and half the box black. Okay? Put a rat in the box. And we're going to electrify the floor. And a light will come on. And when the light comes on, that means the half of the box that the rat's in, let's say it's the white half at that point, it'll get electrified, get a shock. So the light will come on, and it's, that, that's a signal, the shock will come on. The rat eventually learns when light comes on, go over here. And then he hangs out here for a while. And light comes on, he goes over here. And then light comes on, he goes back and forth. It's called the shuttle box. They shuttle back and forth. There's like three different possible reasons, ways that can work. And I can't go horribly into them right now uh, because you don't have the background yet. But you'll find that that, that's going to be a case where we're going to have three competing explanations, three competing theories as to how this actually works. And it's actually a bizarre phenomenon because how could it be reinforcing? Because now the animal isn't getting any shocks anymore because every time it gets a signal, it moves. So why does it extinguish and the rat just gets shocks again and then burns again. It doesn't work that way. Very quickly, the rat just does this. Yeah, okay. Oh, lights on. Back over here. Oh, look, okay, back over here. All right, get back in the home cage now. It's almost over. There's no the problem. So when we get to there, you'll find we have three competing theories. Um... That was not an exhaustive list of what makes a theory good, just like it was not the entire course of 2127 or whatever it's called in biology now, it's Russell's list that I the name. But it's a good idea here, it's a good list. But to keep in mind when you're judging, it's one explanation better than another. One of the things you have to be careful of is the Einstein syndrome, some people call it. Um, people think, and I think most of you guys know this now, that science works like this. Everyone just plunges plows away in the trenches, and then every so often a really smart guy comes along and changes everything. No. It does happen. But the one experiment doesn't blow the lid off everything. This is something I'm always having to get across to honors thesis students. You're not going to blow the lid off something and, and make a brand new exciting discovery that changes everything. It's just not going to happen. There was one Einstein, there was one Newton, one Darwin, and then there was all of us. So you're not going to be able to make that, or it's very unlikely, you'll make that huge discovery. It's also very unlikely when you read one of your papers uh, that you do for your article reviews, you might look at it when you finish reading and go, so? And you know what most people say when they read academic articles, including academics? So? But it's just an incremental piece of the puzzle. And that's how science works. Very small steps. Very rare when Einstein comes along. Very rare when Darwin comes along. Newton. Think about that. I mean, you can name great people like that, but then typically, you don't know, unless you really follow, say, particle physics, you don't really know who these guys are that are getting the Nobel Prize in physics. You're not going, oh, wow, I was really cheering for him. Because he changed everything. When he, now we have flying cars because of that guy. No, it doesn't happen anymore, right? Because we had, we had the one last century. Okay. So we have to collect that in the test series. Right? As you know. Questions so far, Anything? Okay. Yeah, I know it's whole sort of stuff. Well, one of the things we can do is collect data through anecdotes. Now, that's just stories. 
watching stuff happen. There's nothing wrong with just watching stuff happen. It doesn't, it's not the end of the story, it doesn't prove anything, but as I mentioned, just observing stuff can be useful in the life. So you can generate hypotheses as well. You know, this is also If I'm gonna walk around the wall, I can't stand still. So, there's a wonderful, and I, I mentioned a lot about food string birds because it's a great story. Um, there is stuff going back to the 1700s of some Baron de something. French guy, all I know. Baron de something. And he talks about if you want to see that animals learn things and are intelligent, you should take, uh, capture some marsh jets and let them fly around in your parlor. And they will find seeds and they will store them. Great story. I'm not going to test any theory that way. You're not going to test theory that way at all. That's like, it's like I know that's guy. That's an anecdote somewhere. No, but I know a guy. So? That's basically what anecdote is. This is when you try to argue facts with people that bring up anecdotes, right? When you say, you know, you know the, the, the violent crime rate has been decreasing for 40 years, and someone says, yeah, my brother is absolutely broken Huh? I didn't say crime rate of your brother's house was going down. <laughs> you know, everybody. Oh, yeah, this guy I know. He heard from another guy. These guys are doing this stuff. It's not science. It's, I don't know what that is, actually. Now, we can use observation. Now, if we have an anecdote like the story about the food story birds, you can say, well, let's get an observational version of this. Let's go out in the wild and let's operationalize things. Let's say, how are we going to measure stuff? So if you're going to watch birds, you think, oh, here's, an, here's something neat I've seen in the wild. I've seen birds carry food away from a feeder instead of eating it. And if you ever watch a bird feeder in the spring, you'll see that most birds eat the food right at the feeder, but there are some that will take some of your seeds that you put up in your bird feeder and they'll fly away with the blue jays will do this, chickadees, etc. Well, it might look like that. Let's now count the number of times some birds, some species carry food away and other species carry food away. So we can operationalize this. We can say, how are we going to measure this? What do we define as a carry? We think that might be a little more complicated than I think because what if there's two birds at the feeder? They can't both sit on the perch and eat. So if I'm, if I'm bird B and I arrive and take some food and I carry it away five meters, we call that a carry away. <coughs> you might not. So what you do is you just draw a line and say, look, carry the bird five meters away, we'll call that a carry. And the other time we call that an eat. Right? So you still have to operationalize stuff. And that'll give you an idea. That'll give you an idea of what's going on. A great example here is the fact the first studies of Ingrid. Conrad Lorenz um, found that he was, uh, he was working with uh, geese. Was geese? Yeah. He was a, a German ufologist, uh, so studying animal behavior. And when they would hatch, he had something he was hand raising. Right? And he always wore these rubber boots. 
Because he, I guess, because he was around a lot of goose shit, I guess that's German guy, you know. I've been knocking at the bird shit, get off my shoes! So, I get two German guys, yellow German guy, and one German fucks like this, you know. So maybe he talks like that, I don't want to get bird shit on my shoes, I want to wear rubber boots. He puts his rubber boots on, he's got the little goose chicks, his bird. Doesn't matter what a bird looks like, when they're young, they're cute as hell, right? You see little ducks, little geeks, and they're like this, but then you get to be like juveniles and the ugliest thing you've ever seen. But, and then later they're kind of cool looking, like the dinosaurs, because birds are dinosaurs. So he's got these little geese. And he's walked around town with his rubber boots, and it turns out they start following him everywhere he goes when he wears his rubber boots. And everywhere he goes, he's, he's like the pie. Hyper rubber boot wearing geese people. I don't know. So I had some there clearly had nothing. Well, it. So they follow him around, and he's like, I know, this is cool. This is, in fact, an exciting discovery. I know what this They're learning that the boots are their mother. And in essence, he was right. And he got that. Right away, this was observational stuff. Yeah, he did it in a little more controlled way. He would. They change the boots off, things like this, and he eventually made the decision that he's discovered some new kind of phenomenon that he actually said wasn't learning. Um, he's wrong there, though how many double prices do I have? One less than him. But it's pretty much generally agreed now that that's a kind of learning, because what the birds did is the exposure to the boots at time one affected the behavior at time two, and then they follow him around. Right? And he said it's irreversible, it happens in one trial, it's not irreversible. Uh, that is probably happening in a couple of trials. But this led to some great stuff. They also have another, well, some of you guys have a story about it. There's a farm, yeah, farmer Bob there. And there was a story that he had a, uh, there was a goose, and the goose was, uh, very young when it it was hatched there, and his mother had died, and it was living in the narrow horse, and from there it followed the horse there. So the local TV channel, because they asked me a question a couple of times, and I responded, you know, explaining. <coughs> like, after the tsunami in 2005, the guy came and asked me how did other animals get to high ground more quickly? Do they have a sixth sense? Like, no. Hearing <laughs> so they like me, so they call me up. And I said, I'm going to tell you what this one's about. I want to get your reaction on camera. Because he thinks he's completely dumb then. So he says, he's got the camera. I'm sitting in my office. And it's, it's, it's uh, there's this goose, and it lives with this horse. And it seems like it thinks the horse is its mother. How do you explain that? I said, well, it's pretty much simply inferring. I explained it. And I was actually an explanation of what was even happening in the goose's brain. Because a friend of mine, Mickey Clayton, does work on imprint and has, and has found out what part of the brain gets where the synapses get pruned for imprinting to happen. So I'm explaining all this but he'll cut some of it together for his little cute support. You know, at the end of the news, <laughs> and on the lighter side of the news, <laughs> a goose takes a horse as his mother. Let's go to our report on this brain. That's exactly this is what happens. Then they cut to me. I'm sitting in my office. David brought me. Social professional call. And the other, the final question he asked me was, "Do you think that the goose is happy?" 
with the horse just muttering. I said, I don't know, but uh, the loose seems happy, the horse is happy, people are happy, and I'm happy. That's the only thing that's on the TV. <laughs> My science explains it. Gone. And it's a huge news story that's picked up by CTV Newsnet. And now it's all over the country, every 15 minutes for a day. Is me. Well, the goose is happy. <laughs> I get emails from friends at other universities. Great analysis, Dave. <laughs> I was mocked about it at conferences for like two years. <laughs> hey, you're that guy? Yes, I know. You know, I've done some proper science in my life. <laughs> but the cool thing is that Lorenz actually discovered this eventually, no lies, by watching stuff happen. You can do correlational stuff, right? So you can say, and there's no causation. And we don't tend to do correlational research in learning, you know, but you can think of the correlation between uh, years of education and income, things like that. You don't know what comes first, income or education. And you don't know what direction it goes in, right? Does education cause more income, or does more income cause education? Probably a little bit of both. Or we can look at IQ and income, same sort of thing. That's right, IQ creates a social income on average, right? But is it because smart people make more money or is it because people have more money they can get smarter? Well, it's probably a little bit of both. Mostly, probably most of them. Smart people make more money direction, but I'm sure it also feeds back the other way. We just don't know. And we can't know. You, you can't know that it's smoking cigarettes causes cancer. You can't actually know it for sure in humans from one experiment. One piece of research. We know it for sure, though, because we have that that can correlate the number of cigarettes smoked in men with lung cancer and say, eh, well, that. Well, first of all, it seems unlikely that people with cancer go, well, you know, they'll lose, they'll pick up smoking. Secondly, we have all kinds of other studies that all come together, science and other vacuum. But one correlational study would not prove this. It would give you pause, which it eventually did back originally in the 30s, you just said about that? By the 50s, people knew. They just didn't want to, they didn't, didn't want to admit it. Then, of course, there's experiments. We vary one variable. This is what we did here. So we move, we change the amount of alcohol, right? And we observe the other variable. Uh, observing it, we tend to then measure it somehow. So we were actually measuring memory here. Not really. We're measuring a variable that clearly very highly correlates with memory. Percentage of words recall. But it's not totally memory, because well, how could it be, right? Memory isn't something we can directly measure, but we can almost directly measure it. We hold all the other variables constant. This is, for example, giving the people equal amounts of Right, right. We're going to watch out for these compounds. This is the same sort of thing. Look at them for the other effect or the other reason that something happened. The other reason here is the amount that people had to pee. Think about this. This is a great experiment. This is, um, I think, again, this is not 
the Meridian experiment per se. But we got this experiment by Baron in 1973. What happened in this experiment was Baron was interested in, in do are emotions incompatible with aggression? Are they going to make people less aggressive? This is an interesting question. So how is he going to make people angry? Well, there's a lot of ways you can make people angry, but there's a nice, easy way. It's going to do a field experiment. You can do experiments out in the wild. You can. Here's a new experiment. What he did is he had people stop at a stop sign, or sorry, at a red light. I know the light turned green. They didn't go. They didn't go. This gets the person in the car behind them pretty angry. Right? And then he counts. How does he measure anger? He's got to observe, uh, the, the measure, operationalize this somehow. He did it by number of horn honks and number of gestures. <laughs> that's, what he, that's what he measured. Those are actually pretty good ways to measure anger. Because you can't sneak up on the guy and say, oh, by the way, can you just put this on for no reason right now? You know, like a blood pressure cuff? You can't do that, but you can measure horn honks and, and, and give people a finger. Right? It's interesting that that actually is thought of as a bad gesture. Right? I mean, you know, in Brazil, it's this. <coughs> Apparently. Apparently, Richard Nixon arrived in Brazil in 1972 and said, Did this one got off the plane? <laughs> Imagine that. President of Brazil gets off the plane in Canada and goes, ah, It's great to be here, everybody. You know, but of course, people knew they thought it was funny. But it wouldn't be more effort if someone gave you the toe rather than the finger. Just took their shoe off and just like, it's a lot of effort. That's, that really means that effort. Lifting up your big toe. So he's got people angry. He wants to find out who can stop them from being the more and the finger. Well, incompatible emotions. What's incompatible anger? Well, laughter. This chair, just kick this chair. Okay, that's going to go there. I'm going to have a pile of shit here eventually because I'm. Okay. So I guess he makes people laugh. How's he gonna make them laugh? I don't know. Well, he dresses up one of his graduate assistants in a clown suit, and the graduate assistant comes across juggling and stuff. So he cuts across the street. So the guy's at the stop sign or the, the stoplight. There's a car in front, not moving, and then there's the person who's the subject. Person walks by a clown suit. He's got what else is he? What about sympathy? If you feel empathetic or sympathetic to somebody, it's unlikely you're gonna get angry, right? So he's the same person, nice control, same graduate system, and he has her go across with a with a fake cast on with a big ring. Okay? Finally, he figures sexual arousal. So all the subjects are men, they only choose men to do this experiment, and it's the same young woman uh, dressed in a revealing little bathing suit. Remember, it's 1973, it's just post-mad men, so this is apparently okay. So she walks by wearing a little tiny bikini. And now, what's he find? He finds the people that the graphs look like this. So this is nothing. But there we have uh, sexual arousal, and humor, and sympathy. And that's actually pretty compelling, because, yeah, it looks like. First of all, there's a couple of nice things here. He did actually control for something, the same person. It's always the same young woman, right? It's always 
at the same stock level. Um, he only chose cars that didn't have tinted glass, so the person could clearly see. And he found this result and said, look, incompatible emotions cause a decrease in aggression. So maybe we're going to make people less aggressive, we maybe make them funnier, sympathetic, or sexier, or whatever. Now, there's an alternative explanation for these results. What is it? There's a contract. Can you think of another reason with that experiment? Assuming he didn't do something stupid, right? So it's the cars are randomly assigned, he, you know, things like that. The weather's the same when each time was tested, all that good stuff. Can you think of a, another reason to get these same results? What do you think? Well, yeah, please. It's distracted. Like, it's why great. is there a lady in a bikini walking across the yeah. right now? No, exactly. Maybe it's not, maybe it has nothing to do with right. Maybe it's got nothing to do with being aroused, sexually aroused, or thinking something's funny, um, or someone being sympathetic. Maybe it's just that there's a woman walking across the street. What if, why didn't they just have a control condition where she just walked across the street wearing normal clothes? And they didn't. Which is a shame because this is such a neat little experiment. And the conclusions are worthless because they missed the control group. It's just distraction. Or it could be. It may not be. I'm still thinking the clown one. You know, clowns are a little weird. Not everybody thinks, well, I don't think clowns are just creepy, a little scary. Oh my god, there are circus people in town, you know, that kind of thing. So yeah, that's exactly it. So you gotta watch out for conflict. Gotta watch out for placebo effects. I talked about the alcohol and people that are given you know, alcohol studying their controllers. You might think, wait a second, we're talking about animal stuff. You know in drug conditioning experiments, when you do and those are done with animals most of the time. You have to have placebo control groups where you give animals an injection, unless they have any sort of placebo controls yet. You have a group that gets no injection. You'll have a, a group, because a friend of mine, for example, did research, his summer job was shooting uh, rats full of amphetamines and heroin. Um, and he, there were groups where about the drug, the other groups, and the rats got an injection of saline, some of the drug, and then taking the needle, putting it in the rat, and taking it out, not doing the injection. Uh, they're, they're, by the way, they're under anesthetic. Oh, so then under anesthetic and no injection at all, so just under anesthetic. Those are all control groups because these things can all affect the animal's behavior. So there's placebo effects. And the thing is that like, when you're working at all with humans, perhaps even other animals, they try to figure out what the experiment's about. Now, I'm not saying rats are actually sitting there like, I wonder what he's trying to do here. But I know you guys all ran experiments in first year, right? The intro site, you get your bonus marks. You all did that, didn't you? You go in there thinking, I wonder what he's trying to do here. I wonder what she's trying. And you're never right, by the way. But you're, you're always trying to figure it out.
we have to worry about expectation. Now, this is a case where expectation affects on behalf of the experiment. An experiment, a great experiment here, now can get into some sort of learning data. This is an experiment we'll talk about actually, especially at the end of the course, when we talk about verified mission. This is an experiment by Oldhoff, Heidi, and Roberts from 1997. Oldhoff is spelled O-L-O-F-F. Oldhoff. Oops, that's a I'm who's on my Facebook friend list. Okay, this is a neat experiment. What happens in this experiment? We have two, two monkeys, squirrel monkeys, and monkeys named Jake and Elwood. That's what Louis brothers, which is kind of cool. And what they were trying to figure out was could, can you teach monkeys a concept of number, or do monkeys have a concept of number? So what they did here is the monkeys were put in what's called the Wisconsin test box, which is basically a little box you put a monkey in, about that big, and you can slide things in through a drawer that the monkey can look at when you manipulate. Okay? So the monkey sits there, and it's, this thing is slid towards this little drawer, and it had two little wells in it, okay? Like that. Okay, so there's a drawer here, smaller than that. Where it's going around. So these two little wells are drilled out, and you might have there's four pieces of peanut in that one, and one, two, three in that one. So no matter what the rat, the, 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 the uh, monkey does, it gets some food. When you slide this in on top of the one on the right, or the left, I'm sorry, is a card that says this, three, and on top of this one is a card that says four. And you do this with a whole, a whole lot of trucks. And you use all the numbers from zero, sorry, one to nine. So they didn't use zero because they basically didn't want to piss off the monkeys and get them distracted. Because even with a one, they didn't get some food. So there's, there's no thing saying, take the one that's bigger, but the idea is eventually the monkey's supposed to learn that, you know, four is bigger than three, six is bigger than two, etc. The monkey didn't learn this. It took, it took about 100 trials, the one that probably pairs of different numbers. And the monkey's learned this. This isn't horribly surprising. It's kind of cool. But it's not, it's not that surprising. Um, and the idea that it's threes and fours and sixes and ones, you could use triangles, pictures of chairs, and the color orange. It doesn't really matter, it's just that it's, they used Arabic numerals. Good enough. So that's kind of a cool result. Now, what they wanted to do next was to see if they could teach the monkeys to add. And this is where the experiment gets a little more complicated. Because what they did next is they, instead of doing, well, for three and four, you would have this card instead. So three would be, let's go with two, one, and four would be one, three. Now what the monkey has to do, and notice how nicely this is controlled, by the way. The top one is bigger on the left, the bottom was bigger on the right. Like, they did all that really cool stuff. And they thought, well, this is going to take a long time to train them. And they were right 100% of the time on the first 10 tries. And Bill uh, Roberts and uh, Otto Oldhoff and Karen Ivey were completely blown away. 
This was Karen's uh, master's thesis. She was at West Ham as a postdoc in the middle of lab. And then she came to me and said, how do we analyze the data? And I said, I don't really have to analyze data when they're 100% correct, but we use the simple sucking test. Very cool, very exciting. The first thing everyone said is, well, yeah, you, knew what the, you, you know what these numbers mean. Right? You know. You're getting subtle cues. Remember, you know Clever Hans? You know the Clever Hans story, right? The horse that could count. And this is his, his owner, uh, who's another German guy. We're going to call him, let's call him Carl, because I don't know his name. <laughs> so Carl would take his horse Hans to the local fair in Stuttgart, and there is a lot of Stuttgart. He would say, My horse can count. And they say, okay, well, ask him a question, they ask him a question. What is 12 and 7? Someone would say in the crowd, Hans, what is 12 and 7? And Hans would stamp his feet at 19. Pretty cool, except that it only works if uh, Kurt, whatever the hell his name was, the owner, it only works when he asks the question, when he's looking at the horse. You know why? Because he was looking at the horse, giving him cues. He was like, after 19, he's like, at 19, he's got to be smiling on his face. It wasn't that obvious. Because the owner didn't even know he was doing this. He had no clue. And it's a classic example. I get sent questions you now and then from people. Because I'm on these lists of people. People study able cognition. And my name starts with a B, and my university starts with an A. So they email people saying, my dog can talk. You know, I get a lot of those. No, I'm sure it doesn't. Do you know the story of Clever Hans? Now here, I have a video I put on YouTube. Yeah, we'll try publishing that, and we'll talk later. Bye. Um, so, people thought, you know what this has happened here? Is they're giving the monkeys the clues. They're giving them little self-clues. Not on purpose, not on purpose. No one said it was, it was science, dishonest science. They said it was not controlled enough. Eventually, it got to the point where Monica and Karen they would, one would hand the other the tray. The first one didn't know how many, the cards were turned over. That's the next one. Then they were told from a different set of lists how many nuts to put in. Then it's handed to a completely naive second year volunteer undergraduate who puts it in the box. Who was doing this, and she can't because of the way it thumbs up as a blinding fiber, she can't even see the numbers. And it's all recorded by a video camera from above. And it still works. So it turns out that the monkeys can't add, and they do it automatically. You can't teach them to subtract. They tried to thought, maybe you can teach them to subtract. You can't. Takeaways are way harder than pluses, even for monkeys. But this is one of those experiments where people say, it's all about your expectation. You know what to expect in the experiment. I've been through this too, because I do a lot of, I've done a lot of stuff that's, uh, well, still a lot of stuff that's observational. And it's just writing stuff, what happens, writing it down, you know, you have to get people, you videotape sessions, you can say, what happened? You just tell me, did they visit this site or not? Right? So you have to keep that in mind. Double blind, this was blind beyond belief. The old Hoff, I've been Roberts. 
That just means the people don't know what's in the experiment either, like what the expectations are, what's going to happen, and neither do the subjects. Now, technically, our subjects are animals here. They're not going to know. But you do this using sham control groups, as kind of things I was talking You compare groups, obviously. Um, one of the biggest things you're looking at here is looking at change over time in learning, right? Because you'll see there's time, there's trial one, trial two, up to trial you know, 100, whatever. One of the things to care about here is carryover effects, right? Because you have to worry about the animal getting tired. Once the animal learned, has it learned the wrong thing in the previous trial, things like that. So you always have to keep that kind of stuff in mind. One of the things you really want to do is systematically replicate stuff. This is one of the real problems, I think, in fact, in a lot of science now. People constantly want to, all my thing has to be brand new. Yeah, you know, if I found zero, two, and five drinks, someone really ought to do the one, one, three, and seven drink experiment, too. We have to systematically replicate. This has to happen. In our, in our search for originality, sometimes we miss it replicating stuff, finding out that this effect isn't just dumb luck. So you use stats to find out if differences are real. Who here has not taken statistics? You've all taken okay. You've almost taken it. Maybe you're taking it soon, but at some point in your life. Basically think of it this way. If you flip a coin, Six times, uh, sorry, ten times you get six heads, you don't think that the coin is fixed. If you flip the coin ten times, you get seven heads, you probably don't think the coin is fixed. If you flip the coin ten times, you get eight heads, it's probably a fixed coin. And that's basically what statistical methods do. They say, look, what's the likelihood of something like this happening by chance? That's all they're doing. Right? So you know most of you know about that. And in fact, if you don't, that coin analogy works pretty well. Okay. One of the things we'll run into as well in this course is the idea that there are different approaches to studying learning. Very broadly, there's a sort of quote behaviorist approach, which is to only look at observable behavior and to only make compare uh, explanations that are based on observables. And then there's a cognitive approach, which says that we can look at what's happening in the animal's mind very carefully. <coughs> The true behaviorist only deals with the observable. Now, cognitivists also deal with the observable. Right? Cognitivists, somebody's a cognitive, that studies animal cognition, cognitive, and I would put myself in that, in that team, says, look, I'm only going to talk about behavior I can observe, but I will have intervening variables. In between the cause and the effect, I'm going to say what's happening in the animal's representation in its mind. Behaviors don't like that term. That, you know, they, they're really opposed to that. There aren't many of them left. Most of them are dead. I'm not kidding. Most of them just died. So, we have a stimulus. Right? That can be anything, uh, no matter what. And we have a response, the behavior. The true behaviorist goes from stimulus 
behavior. Most people nowadays are more, you can call yourself a, a cognitive behaviorist, which is not nearly the contradiction it sounds like. And then what they're what somebody like, like what I do is I say, look, there's a stimulus, there's behavior, and what in the middle caused this? What's happening in the animal's brain? Not in its brain necessarily, but in its mind. Okay? Well, how's its representation working? How is it representing the real world? And you do this sparingly. You don't just say, well, clearly what the animal was thinking was when, as its mind wandered, it's not some bizarre William James thing where you're sitting in a leather chair talking about the stream of consciousness. What you're talking about here is how do I explain the data rather than just say, when this happens, what behaviors I gave this stimulus and this response happens. End of story. Cognitive psychologist says, there's a stimulus, there's a response. Why did get that response? Oh, this is how it happened in the representation. So a cognitive psychologist doesn't usually sort of intervene variables and ideas with representation carelessly. They're doing it carefully. So cognitive psychologists study representations. And while we're going to be talking about classical and operant conditioning, you're going to think that's not much of a representation. You'd be surprised. I already talked about predictive. I said there's not, somebody has no more predictive value. I talked about that, the light and tone compound of the stimulus. That's really about a representation of the world, works, right? Lights predict food, tones don't, or whatever. So Suzuki Ajayos in Black in 1980, here's their experiment. One of my favorite experiments. By the way, I met the Master University. We're really good at this in Canada. I don't know why. So, in Suzuki and Elsa's experiment, they use something called radial waves. And it's a maze with eight arms that radiate out from the center like these folks probably do. And these arms are about 60 centimeters long, typically. And there is food at the end of each arm. There's food in each arm. The rat's task here, put in the center of his task, is to visit each arm and get the food. Simple enough. Now, the thing is, a rat, I know what I do. Let's start here and go, oh, rat, it's easy. That's not what a rat does. They go in what seems like a random pattern, except they don't even sticks. After literally five or six times doing this, they just clean the maze out without revisiting arms. How are they doing this? Pretty cool. It's pretty, so you get the idea, right? The general idea. Well, what people thought was what they're doing is that they have, there were things in the room. And typically these experiments, it's kind of an open room. So maybe there's things they're seeing at the end of each arm, they're like tags. And what the rat does is like say, oh, I've been down the one that looks like it's near where the chair is. I've been down the one that looks like it's near where X and Y. I don't remember, I've used radial mazes. We put stuff all over the walls to help the rats out. 
posters up, things like that. Pardon me? Visual cues. Visual cues. It's exactly what we did. So what Suzuki et al. did is they covered this whole thing in a great big round curtain. And they actually put at the end of each arm a different color of cue. Uh, I'm going to run out of ideas in a second. I don't know square it. How about a pentagon? I'm trying to hypnotize the rest of that one. Um, okay. So they put all these things, I don't know what they are, they just put some stuff in the end of each other. The question is, are the rats remembering this by saying, I went to the one with the CH is, Montreal Canadian Express, I went to the one where the star is, I went to the one with the square. Or are they remembering the whole thing? Right? Are they remembering the configuration of the whole? That's the question. It's a cool question. So what they did is the rats were allowed to visit four arms. And then the experiment stopped. When the rat gets back to the middle, uh, a tube comes down and keeps it in the middle. And now in one group, they rotate the shower curtain. And in another group, you just start flipping these all over the place. So one group, the whole world's, well, the whole uh, set of cues rotates, let's say, I think it rotated 90 degrees. And in the other group, they just randomly switched a bunch of them around. And then what do you do is you watch and see what happens. Do they follow the individual cues? Or do they follow where the whole world, this whole relationship here with flip, they follow back. It turns out what they do is they actually follow when you rotate it. When you switch them around, they act like it's a whole new world. They've never had any chance. So what that says then is that the rat's representation is not about individual arms and stimuli, it's about the relationship of each stimulus to each other stimulus and to the arms. Do you understand the experiment? It's pretty clever, isn't it? It's, it's also very low tech. It's a shadow curtain. It's some wood. You don't have to get inside a rat's brain using electrodes, as cool as that is, to find out what you're thinking. Instead, what you can do it's a very simple experiment that probably cost about a hundred bucks minus what the rats cost. Pretty damn cool. So you can't explain that without talking about representation, about a spatial representation. You can't. I don't see it's a simpler explanation. The simplest explanation here is that they have the rats have a map of spatial representation of the world. That's pretty cool. One of my favorite terms. It's one of my favorite ER radio music terms. There's lots of those. You can't explain this any other way. Questions so far? Does that make sense? That experiment's sensible enough? I think it's pretty neat. So both cognitive behavior psychologists study humans and non-humans. There aren't very many of these guys left. Behaviors. Hey, 
they exist, but they're not very many left. Women's rails. So even though each species is different, there are some overriding commonalities. So we have to keep that in mind. That there are times when while generally classical conditioning works in every species that are tested, operating conditioning works in any species that can move at all. Um, there are special things, there are commonalities associated with learning in every animal. There are special things in every animal too. We tend to study the common things, but there are some very special things, and there are some really exceptional things in humans. There's something very, there are some very special things in us. What we're doing right now, me being able to speak to you understanding it, because it's one of the keys. Alright. About ethics, uh, there are potential ethical issues. If you're somebody, by the way, who gets really queasy about animal experimentation, you're not going to like this course very much. Yeah, you know. Um, you can't test animal learning through <coughs> tissue culture. I love filling up these animal protocols. What about alternatives? Have you tried a computer model or a tissue culture? Well, let's see how a tissue culture does in this scenario here. Not very well. Let's put a petri dish in the center and see how it behaves. <laughs> it doesn't work. We're studying home animals, right? The rules, however, are exceedingly strict. The rules for uh, animal experimentation. Uh, some of the rules are kind of silly, actually, but we all have to follow them. I remember a rule once, there's a rule, in fact, with this kind of maze, you actually have to uh, sterilize it between experiment, between rats, and you can't. It just can't be done. You get an autoclave maze. You can't really do that. I remember a friend of mine being asked that graduate school when he was an inspection. Yes. So you sterilize the equipment after every run? He went, uh, sure. Because <laughs> you can't. You just can't. You got uh, But most schools actually are very sensible. And in fact, for the most part, they're just common sense. They're mostly common sensors. They're not, um, there's really nothing too arduous. I do remember, for example, my favorite ridiculous rule, though, was when we had a brand new lab and I was a grad school of T. And they came to give us the um, sort of seal of approval. We could do experiments in there. And of course, said, one of the guys that worked there, Jerry Hogan, had chickens, studying behavior in chickens. And he had these nice chicken coops, and they had natural light. They had skylights. That sounds nice, right? And the guy said, well, you can't control the time of light and dark on set. Uh, I don't think this will pass. And Jerry said, so you're telling me that natural light isn't good enough for animals? He said, oh, if you want to write that up, that's fine. And when I contact the news media about how ridiculous this is, they just went, well, okay. We had natural light for the monkeys for Jake and Owen. They even had a radio, and they got to look out the window when they're sitting in their cages. They had toys to play with. And with monkeys, if they don't want to do the experiment, with rats, you open it up, you pick it up, you put it in your front desk. And then you pull out your shoulder, put a little carrying box. On your shoulder, actually, violates code. So I never did that. 
Uh, with monkeys, you would you open up their cage and say, you want to go do the experiment? You hold their little carrying cage, and if they look at you, they go, no. They look at you like they don't get it, you go, okay, you know, no problem, man. Because fighting with a monkey is a bad thing. Right? Monkeys are... It would be like if you had some eagles. You want to do an eagle experiment. You go, the eagle's like, I'm not doing it today. It's going to soar around and kill you. <laughs> okay, dude, just calm down. So, the Canadian Council on Animal Care, they make up rules. Now, there will be experiments we'll talk about that today are, uh, the today, remember a long time ago, today might not pass ethical guidelines. Uh, most of them would not, in all honesty. So the CCAC makes up these rules. They're a quasi-governmental organization. Or, like, they're not. They have some power. The power they have is if, if you're running experiments without a CCAC seal of approval, without their, good, uh, their, their certificate for, for good practices on animal use, they can take away people's research grants. And the neat thing is, they don't just take away people's research grants who were doing the experiments. They just take away all the grants at that university. They, they have that power. That's how we got a brand new lab when I was at U of D. They kept saying, you can't use this space anymore. It's horrible. It's not fair to animals. And my supervisor kept saying, we know it's a bad space. We want to do that. We can't get any money out of the administration for that. And the guy said, OK, well, I'm going to go tell the president, the vice president of research, we're going to shut down this whole university. They suddenly found $3 million to do this and that. Oh, yeah, we can find you some money. And they're pretty reasonable. And it's made up of scientists in all fields, but it's also made up of uh, people from humane societies, uh, veterinarians, etc. Um, here on campus, we have an institutional animal care committee, and every university has one of those as well. And it's made up of faculty that, that have, have or do study animals, and also some faculty that don't and never have. Uh, and it's also made up of there's a vet, and there's a community representative. That's usually someone from the Humane Society. And they go over protocols, they go over people's proposals and say, this is legal, uh, you know, this, this is right, this is wrong, you, you can't do this, you shouldn't do that. Um, experiments are, are rated A to E. A is, for the most part, the simplest. It's like you're doing nothing. Nothing that would violate you or an animal. Like, for example, I'm going to go watch squirrels in the park. That's an A. Because I'm not even capturing animals. Almost all the experiments you'll you'll do in this class, they would be bees. They're, the animals are taken into a lab. They live in a in cages. And might, the biggest thing that happens to them is they might get food deprived. So in other words, they don't eat until they run the experiment, and then they get their, their main meal of the day after the experiment. If they're not hungry, they work hard. Uh, e, then we experiments here with this course with a little like C. That's things that involve sharks. Surgeries often involve C's or C's. Um, e is things like you're going to kill it while it's alive and awake. Like a dissection, it hardly ever happens. In psychology, it never happens. E is horrible pain and distress. And you have to avoid it. You can advise you that. I said, you're going to kill it while it's alive. I said, you're going to kill me while it's dead. Um, 
can hardly ever get easy. And you have to, you have to really justify using an experiment that's a neat protocol. Like you have to make sure that people understand. Uh, like the, the ethics committee will say, you can't do this another way. Those are hardly ever passed. And I've never been involved in anything that's bigger than C. I've done some seats. We've done some, I've done some stuff with rat brains. Uh, Questions so far? Let's stop now. Yeah, it seems like a reasonable place to stop because the next slide is different. Um, so we'll stop here and we'll continue to talk about this stuff uh, next weekend. Next weekend, guys. These are godless times, Mrs. Snell. I'll drink to that. podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. 
Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.